I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. A few short weeks ago, on March 2nd, 2023, the Bryansk region of Russia was attacked. Vladimir Putin blamed it on Ukraine. However, a far-right-wing neo-Nazi group known as the Russian Volunteer Corps, composed of Russian nationalists, who have sided with Ukraine, has since taken credit for the attack. Some have argued that this was a Russian false flag, while others say it points towards domestic strife within Russia and the possibility of a potential civil war being possible in Russia at some point. What's the truth of the matter? And why would a far-right-wing group be against Vladimir Putin, who himself is understood to be a right-wing authoritarian figure? Joining us to answer those questions is Dr. Marlene Laurel, director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, and the author of Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. In addition to discussing the Bryansk attack, Dr. Laurel and I will also be delving into the Russian far-right more generally. The Russian far-right's relationship with mixed martial arts subcultures, Putin's rhetoric around and motivations for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
right-wing ideology in the official Russian state and what Dr. Lorel refers to as the Russian parallel state. The differences between Russian state media's messaging towards its domestic audience versus non-domestic audiences, the Wagner Group and potential political rivals to Vladimir Putin, the Putin regime's management of various factions of the Russian elite, the right-wing philosopher Alexander Dugin, and much, much more. With all that being said, let's get right to it with Dr. Marlene Laurel, author of Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with, Marlene Laurel of George Washington University and author of the book, Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. So the reason I initially wanted to have you on the show uh, is because there was this uh, attack on the Bryansk region of Russia. Uh, and, you know, Putin was saying this is being done by the Ukrainians. And then a group called the Russian Volunteer Corps came out and said, we're responsible for it. Uh, a neo-Nazi is part of that group. Uh, I don't know if you, you've looked at this case at all, but can you maybe give uh, some insight into what actually happened with this attack? Yeah, I believe the, the scenario that it was this Russian Volunteer Corps, I don't think it was a, a, a kind of false flag uh, uh, attack done organized on the Russian side or that it was, I don't know the level of coordination with the Ukrainians, but I think what we have been seeing growing on the Ukrainian territory is this kind of, you know, Russian foreign legion phenomenon with a lot of form Russian citizen or former Russian citizen being gradually trained to uh, uh, move on on a more kind of revolutionary approach of, of trying to overthrow the, the regime in Russia. And this Russian volunteer core seems to be one of the core elements. So you have far-right groups. It seems you also have a lot of, you know, Russian Muslim groups that are also so Chechen, Dagestani, that are also getting trained in Ukraine or near Poland and who are kind of interested in, in moving toward a more kind of a violent uh, attack on Russian uh, uh, territory. And this Russian Volunteer Corps, it's, I think it's an interesting phenomenon because it was already there for years, right? So already after 2014 and Crimea annexation by, by Russia, there was already part of the Russian far-right, the anti-Putin Russian far-right that moved on the Ukrainian side. It was a small group in 2014, but you had some Russians who made that move to Ukraine and were fighting with the Azov uh, battalion on the Ukrainian side. And then since uh, Russia full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 24, uh, last year, I think you had a bigger move of some of these Russian uh, far-right groups siding with Ukraine. So you have this interesting phenomenon now of kind of Russian ethno-nationalist against Russian imperialism, right? So 
Russia is promoting a version of nationalism that is an imperialist one. They are promoting something that is much more ethno-nationalist and that is siding with Ukraine and with NATO. And as I was saying, it's not a new divide. It's just becoming very visible now because the scale seems to have changed. And it seems you now have really like, like several thousands of people that are former Russian citizens, mostly Muslim, but also this Russian far-right group that are uh, fighting on, on Ukrainian side. And then it's all this kind of, you know, international movement of both neo-Nazi group, mixed martial art group, groups doing, you know, survivalist kind of urban warfare training, football hooligan groups reconverted into this kind of neo-Nazi uh, 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 networks that is now siding uh, 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 with Ukraine against against the, the Putin's invasion. So that's not a new phenomenon, but that's got kind of accelerated. I think the Bryan's uh, attack was an example of them trying to show that the goal for them is to import or export the war on Russian territory and kind of frame a narrative that is about Russian civil war of one anti-Putin group. So a one group of Russian citizen anti-Putin able to create a kind of guerrilla atmosphere in Russia, at least in some of the, the region of Russia that are bordering Ukraine. So the narrative that will be growing from that is this kind of Russia being at risk of a civil war. Um, and I think that's, that is also a political project that they have. So if you could, I know uh, people were confused by this attack because they'll say, well, Putin sounds more and more far right. We see a lot of, um, you know, concerning rhetoric coming out of the Russian Orthodox Church so I guess some people are confused when they hear that there's a far right in Russia that is pro-Putin, and then there's also a far right that is anti-Putin. How do you explain that to folks? Yeah, I think so. You had the domestic context in Russia where you always had tension between those for whom the state is the leading entity and everything should be dependent and decided by the state. So it's a kind of great power nationalism or an imperialist nationalism, and then groups that were always more kind of ethno-centrist and who really care about like saying it's not the state that matter, it's the Russian nation that matter. And that tension was already there in the 90s. And then it kind of grew up in the 2000s. And so, of course, there are moments where they side with each other, but there are also moments where those who consider that the ethnic nation is the core legitimacy consider that the Russian state is too you know, multinational, is open to migration, uh, um, is is too much kind of internationalized or too much, you know, like Jewish. I mean, you have all the kind of the usual conspiracy theory about the Russian state that are there also. And so it's really groups that were coming from the skinhead tradition, really kind of caring about kind of, you know, street activism, pogroms against migrants, and so on. And really, the line of divide was very visible in 2011, 2012. And then with 2014, Crimea annexation, nationalists had to choose either you side with Putin and you consider that what he was able to do with Crimea means that he's a legitimate representative for Russian nationalism, or you side with the Ukrainian side and you consider that Putin is just representing a kind of imperialism that is not that is an authoritarian imperialism that is not giving the rights to this kind of uh, Russian ethno-nationalist uh, um, claims. And then you have that domestically, and then you have that at the European scale. 
where you always had European far right that was pro-Russian and European far right that was pro-Ukraine. I mean, the European pro-Russian far right was biggest in number, at least until 2022. And then now, of course, because of the the the, the full scale invasion, it's kind of changing. So you see, you know, like for example, in Italy, it's a good example. For years, both Berlusconi and Salvini were very pro-Russian. Now that you have Georgia Meloni and Brothers of Italy in power, they are much more pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian, pro-NATO. So you see this kind of two geopolitical tradition of European far right, a pro-Russian and a pro-NATO one also getting transformed by the war. So you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think I've heard you also point this out that, uh, you know, Russian, uh, Putin's brand of Russian nationalism, it places ethnic Russians at the core, but it sort of allows these other ethnic groups to exist, but they're all sort of under this idea of a Russian nationalism. So it does have that difference from, I guess, these Russian ethno-nationalists that you're talking about. Is that uh, a good way of summing it up? Yeah, I think it's putting the state at the corner. So everybody is kind of under the state and the, the, the state interests are over the interest of the Russian nation. And then you have this kind of concentric circle, ethno, like ethnic Russian being orthodox and then different groups, orthodox and orthodox. And then, but, but since the beginning of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Putin has been really pushing the multinational rhetorical aspect of the Russian state. So you can feel that they have, there is ambiguities in the Russian narrative between like domestically emphasizing the multinationality aspect of the Russian state and not the ethno-nationalism at all. But the narrative toward Ukraine is a kind of imperial narrative of Ukrainians belong to the Russian nation historically and, and culturally. So you have this kind of mixed signaling coming from the Russian state structure itself. So then, since we were talking about this Russian volunteer corps and, and similar groups, this, are these groups comparable to say, um, you know, sort of like what we have in America with things like the Aryan Brotherhood? Are they, are they sort of like gangs in a way? Yeah, I think they come so from, I mean, sociologically, as I was saying, you have all these kind of so neo-Nazi, mixed martial arts, uh, uh, soccer hooligan, and then kind of criminal, you know, like underground structure that are coming together with a kind of white nationalist or white supremacist uh, ideology with different kind of coloring. And it's also, they also refer to the Second World War, right? The, the Russian Volunteer Corps are also like symbols that come from the Vlasov Liberation Army. So they are also themselves kind of repeating the Second World War and the issue of who is siding on which side uh, uh, for or against the Soviet Union. So it's not only Putin's Russia that is kind of repeating the Second World War. It's also this kind of anti-Putin groups. I want to move on to maybe some bigger picture elements, but you, you mentioned the MMA element. Uh, does that relate to things like, I know in Chechnya, there's the um, Azmat Fight Club and there's a lot of uh, sort of nationalist sentiments within the Eastern European MMA circles. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think the MMA is really, it's this kind of subculture, you know, group that is really connected to a lot of political things happening in Russia, both at the state level, like Putin has been himself a big promoter of MMA, 
And then you have the regional declension and Chechnya has been a big one and the whole North Caucasus has a long tradition of, you know, Asian or, uh, 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 or Islamic version of, or Middle Eastern version of, of uh, boxing and mixed martial arts. And so what is interesting is that it's this kind of nesting doll where you have Chechen mixed martial art connected to Kadyrov, but also representing the kind of Putin level, pan-Russian level uh, um, uh, mixed martial art. And it has been really one of these transmission belt for Russian influence, I think all over Europe, all these mixed martial art club, the same way as like the survivalist culture has been an element for US far-right group to penetrate, you know, or to cultivate some connection. You have the same with the mixed martial arts from coming from the Russian side. Uh, in regards to this attack that happened in Bryansk, uh, you know, Ukraine is saying uh, sort of what you were alluding to before, that this could mean uh, sort of a fracturing of Russian society, uh, you know, um, people within Russia turning against the state and, you know, a sort of civil war scenario. Uh, is that being overhyped or is Russia going through a period where there could be domestic strife? Well, I think it's hyped. I think the number of people who are pushing for that kind of scenario are really a very, very little, my, a small minority. So it's a few thousand, maybe tens of thousands of people who are abroad. And then inside Russia, you have probably some small groups, especially among ethnic minorities, but not only that see that it's they can size the moment, seize the moment to try to shake uh, the political system. But I think the majority of the population is really not in favor of that kind of fragmentation because it's remind them the fragmentation of the early 90s, I mean, of the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the, the early 90s. But depending how the war will evolve, of course, you can imagine a scenario where you will have this kind of growing tension and Russia has been through a civil war at the after the Bolshevik Revolution. So you country which had a civil war have something remaining staying in them, right? Like 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 in the US probably. But you also see you also have other scenarios that are more probable, more likely, right, for Russia. I mean a, a military dictatorship is probably more likely as a scenario than a than a civil war. So one of the questions my listeners sent in for this conversation was uh, they were curious to hear about the Russian far right's roots in the late Soviet era. Um, and I think they mentioned um, Pemyat um, when it comes to that. Can you uh, speak a little bit to far right parties in the late Soviet era? Yeah, th that's a very important question because indeed you have continuity. And I think it's important to realize that, in fact, since the 60s, Inside the Soviet state apparatus and the Communist Party apparatus, you had groups of nationalist sensibility emerging, and they were called by one of the main historians of that uh, uh, movement, Nikolai Mitrokhin, the Russian Party. So the Russian Party inside the Communist Party, in a sense, pushing for kind of nationalist narrative, either ethno-nationalist, either kind of Tsarist, orthodox, nostalgic, either Stalinist, version so you had different kind of ideological coloring and indeed they have been growing inside the state structure during all the 70s and the 80s and then at the moment of the perestroika time where they could suddenly express themselves publicly more visibly you had several associations including pamyat which was really the kind of the the cadre school for post-soviet russian nationalism emerging and still now i mean 
people are getting old, but you still have some figure who remember the, the Pamiat kind of training. And then many Pamiat then collapse into several groups that really have shaped the far right landscape in Russia. So you have indeed a, a very long historical connection that goes really like up to the, you know, the post-Stalinist time. So like late 50s, early 60s. So then with regards to the title of your book, Is Russia Fascist? I know you uh, sort of take issue maybe a little bit with uh, calling Russia simply fascist. Uh, Could you maybe get into your reasons for saying, hey, maybe this isn't the exact right definition. You're not arguing that Russia is, uh, you know, some liberal bastion. I I think you are saying it's very liberal, uh, but you're hesitant to use the word fascist. Why is that? So you see, they have been... And as you know, the, the the scholarship on fascism has a lot of internal debates and you have many ways of defining them. For me, the, the key element is then to be a fascist regime, you really need to be in a kind of permanent mobilizing strategy toward your population. You want people to be very hyped ideologically and also like physically, like materially kind of uh, uh, engage. And you also need to promote the idea that war and violence are the only solution to create a kind of tabula rasa and build something new, right? So you have a kind of regenerative aspect of war that should be articulated. And so what the book was trying to say, and the book was published before the the full-scale invasion, was that when you look at the state production, right? So the the state-level production, it's ultra-conservative. You can say it's reactionary. But it wasn't fascist. It was really interesting in demobilizing citizens. It was not promoting violence as a solution, even if you had a militarization or patriotic military aspect growing. We can discuss the role of kind of what was patriotism, what is nationalism in the in the ideology. And I think what has been happening since February 24 is that the ideological diversity that was still existing in Russia before kind of shrunk, of course, and now you have this kind of ambiguous official state and parallel states. The official states, so like the narrative that are produced by the presidential administration in shaping the new state ideology, you know, for textbook, for 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 a university. It's a conservative, very Soviet-inspired, you know, celebrating the Second World War. So it's a lot of collection of kind of empty signifier that they try to put together to create a new kind of indoctrination mechanism. And then you have the parallel state. And I think the parallel state now has become fascist, right? So So which means you had this kind of fascist group that were existing before, but that were not directly connected to the presidential administration. Now with the war, they kind of got closer. And so this, what I call the parallel state that I see as fascist, it's both, so those who were already fascist before, you know, like unfamous Alexander Dugin and so on, but also all those who are kind of what we call the Voyenkori, so the war correspondents, that are embedded with the Russian military troop or with the Wagner troop, and that are very much considering that violence is the solution, right? And that you should regenerate the society through violence. And then up to some political figure like Patrushev, like Dmitry Medvedev. So now you can see a kind of part of the Russian political system 
that is really promoting fascism in the definition I was giving, and at the same time, a kind of civilian part of the state that is still promoting a really kind of Soviet-inspired, uh, a conservative reactionary ideology that I wouldn't define as fascism. Since you mentioned um, Alexander Dugan, uh, I've long sort of said that I think Dugan's influence in Russia is vastly overstated. And he, I think he deliberately plays into that. You know, uh, this whole idea of Putin's Rasputin. I think he likes having that sort of James Bond villain image. Uh, do you share that assessment that maybe Dugan's influence is overstated? And in overstating that, do we overlook other figures that are important within the Russian far right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been saying that for years. I think we have overstated his influence in Russia. I think he really played an important role in being the translator, not only literally translator, but also the ideological translator of all the European far-right literature into a Russian context and kind of russifying you know, Julius Evola and all the, the kind of, you know, the Benoit and all the, the other big names of the European New Right or more the traditional kind of fascist uh, um, uh, uh, literature into a Russian framework. So he played a big intellectual role. I think his political role has been really minimal over the years. He had few moments of influence, but he had largely over 30 years moment of non-influence. So at least a very limited influence and we know he had I was no- going to say yeah. I think he lost his job at the uh, at a state university a few years back in in Moscow Yeah after 2014 so there was a moment at the beginning of the the Crimea uh, uh, annexation and the 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 war in Donbas where it was pretty influential and then he got dismissed after uh, 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 being too radical right and that's where we are back to this ambiguity between Russian nationalists and the way the state want them to be that there was a moment where he began saying, well, the national revolution should go not only to Kiev, but also to Moscow. And in that case, he become a danger for the Russian system and no more a, a, a partner. So he has been really kind of uh, uh, in decline up to kind of uh, the full scale invasion, where it seems now that him and his group around him, so Alexander Prokhanov and all the Izborsky club, seems to have been slowly getting building or being invited to be more in touch with the presidential administration, but they were not before, right? It's really something that happened with the war now of them slowly getting integrated into how the presidential administration is trying to shape a new ideological uh, narrative. But before that, he was almost without contact at the presidential administration. He has all the niches of, of influence. And as you said, the focus we had on him make that we didn't see other figures. Right. And there have been a lot of people, maybe less flamboyant, flamboyant than than Dugin, more, you know, technocratic figure producing, you know, less interesting to read text, but which were who were much more influential for the presidential administration. Is there anyone that comes to mind in particular in, in regards to that? No, you know, it's a lot of people who don't have really big names. So I would say in a sense, it's an anonymous construction, right? You you cannot really identify super big names, but you had several small names, institution, and people who probably contributed like small pieces to what is in the process of beginning a new kind of state ideology. And then I think we probably overlooked the role of the church. 
And I think since the, the full-scale invasion and the, the way the patriarch Kirill has been really embracing the war, and not only embracing it, but trying not to create a kind of theological justification for the war that we realize how much the church is also playing a kind of role of inspiration for, for the state and vice versa. So you mentioned that this sort of parallel state is getting closer to the presidential administration. And that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you about. What is motivating Putin? Because I think at one point he he was willing to work within this sort of uh, post-Westphalian system uh, you know, the globalized world, uh, you know, I mean, he was a member of things like um, the World Economic Forum and whatnot before this war. But it seems like he's grown tired of that or he's grown uh, against it, uh, preferring a more uh, Westphalian system. Uh, can you speak to what how has his views changed over the years? Yeah. That, and I think that's a very important point that you are mentioning, because we are looking at a man who has been in power for 23 years now right so he has himself evolved and and the russia place in the world and relationship with the west has also been evolving over 23 uh, years so i think the goal was always the same when he arrived in power and when we read his uh, millennium manifesto that is published when he was prime minister it was really about like so russia should be a great power should be recognized as a great power should have a kind of say over the the european security architecture and the post-soviet region and the society should be patriotic so everything was there it's just that the toolkit he has to make that happen was a different toolkit he thought it would make it happen by integrating russia into the international community both politically and economically so he really thought that the globalization of Russia would give Russia these tools for great power recognition. And then gradually it failed, partly, and then they moved to different toolkits. So you had the moment of the more kind of soft power, you know, outreach to far-right audience, disinformation kind of toolkit that emerged. And so I think gradually the toolkit evolved. The goal says the st- stay the same, but the toolkit evolved. And in a sense, the war arrived at the last element of the toolkit, while all the other tools have failed at getting what he wanted, which is Russia being recognized as a great power and having a say recognized by the US and by the West. Then the war appeared the last solution. And even inside the war, you have, I mean, the, the special military operation at the beginning was a strategy of overthrowing the Zelensky government and having a puppet government, but not annexing Ukraine per se, right? If they would have had a puppet government in Kyiv, they may would have been satisfied with keeping, you know, Ukraine as it was with Crimea, of course, already annexed, annexed to, to, to Russia and Donbass in this kind of ambiguous situation. But because they failed at that, then they have this kind of, you know, then we will be conquering and annexating new territory. So the territorial annexation arrive at the last element of the toolkit because all the other failed. Right. So I think it's a man who has been who has a lot of resentment and really failed at getting what he thought was important. And so he has he has evolved a lot over the, the two decades. So I know that you um I believe you probably watch, uh, you know, um, Russian language media. And I was wondering if you can talk about the differences between, say, the English language version 
of Russian media. So things like RT and what people in Russia are seeing, because I think there's different messages being sent out uh, by those outlets. Oh, yeah, totally. The, the, the Russian media structure is a very sophisticated one. And so what is built for domestic audience is not always what is built for global audience, right? So the global audience has been also changing a lot in the beginning of the war, because now that RT and Sputnik are more or less not available anymore to Western audience, right? They have really saw a shrinking audience. And so what they are doing now is shifting toward the global south. So they are reinforcing, you know, the audience for Latin America, for French-speaking Africa, for Asia, because they cannot access anymore the European audience. And so what we see, the way they reshape their global South audience is very much this kind of anti-colonial narrative. So Russia as the heir of the Soviet Union, the anti-imperialist power, the one helping the global South to fight to fight US and European neocolonialism and so on. So all these arguments are kind of really very much articulated now by, by Sputnik, for example, or, or, or RT. What is articulated for domestic audience is a much more classic, you know, like the West is attacking uh, Russia and we are just defending ourselves and repeating the big feat of the Second World War. So it's it's a it's a much more kind of classic uh, uh, Russian centric vision of the relationship uh, uh, to the West, and you can see on some issues it has very different narrative, right? So, for example, even before the war, the artist Sputnik narrative toward Western audience was a very anti-migrant, anti-Islam one because it was talking to European far right or, or far right leaning audience. The Russian domestic narrative is much more the multinational narrative. So you would be celebrating Islam as part of this kind of traditional religion of, of uh, Russia and so on. So they have been playing with really a lot of different repertoire. I was going to say, it sounds like what Russian media does is they play to different audiences at different times. You know, at one point they'll play for, to maybe a far left-wing audience, then they'll play to a, a far right-wing audience, then a Muslim audience. It sounds like they play to different audiences uh, dependent on their goals. Exactly. And I had a paper when I called that a niche soft power. It's not a universalistic soft power as we imagine it for, you know, liberalism and the US and human rights and so on. It's a niche soft power. So it's a very postmodern eclectic soft power that is not afraid of contradiction, right? It's speaking to small group, as you said, far right, far left, kind of Soviet nostalgic, uh, uh, Christian audience, Muslim audience, you know, just kind of more leftist European audiences, so they can really adapt their narrative. And I think they have been pretty good at trying to craft these mini niches so they know they cannot have a global outreach like the West. But they, they getting niche audiences is enough for kind of challenging the world order and giving Russia this kind of status of the rebellious great power, right? The, the the great power that represent the resistance to the Western global order. And that's enough for them to play on that. I, I think a lot of people are wondering, what is Putin's end game um, with Ukraine? Uh, I mean, does he want to go beyond Ukraine? Does he want to go after other Baltic states? Um, I know we're speculating a bit here, but where do you see uh, Putin's policies going into the future? 
No, I think Ukraine was really the crystallizing element of its kind of, you know, geopolitical obsession. I don't think they are, I mean, you would always find, you know, provocation and provocative talk coming from the Russian state media and from Russian political figure. And as I said, you have this kind of fascist parallel state existing that will have people saying like, we want to take Poland, you know, back and the Baltic state. I don't think anyone among the Russian decision-making circles really believe they can attack a NATO country without knowing that the consequences will be huge for them. Right, they would be triggering Article 5. Exactly. And given their difficulties are just dealing with Ukraine, right, which is a non-NATO member, I don't see how uh, they could uh, imagine that they would be able to go after a NATO country. So I don't think that the plan... I think Ukraine was really the crystallizing kind of obsession for Putin because it's really where the the normative tension with the Western model and the Russian vision of its kind of sphere of influence were clashing the more directly. And it's also where the kind of imperial nostalgic uh, uh, arguments was also the most crystallizing. So this idea that Belarus and Ukraine should be part of a big Russia. They may have their independent state if these independent states are loyal and turn toward Russia. But if they are turning out away from Russia, then they should be taken back. So I think Ukraine is in a unique position and that's why it triggered the the war. I don't think they, I mean, what they want through Ukraine is to try to reshape the European security order. And of course, if they were asked what they want, it's not only about Ukraine, it's also like we want to say about, you know, NATO expansion and how we are part of European security discussion. But I don't think there is any invasion plan to go uh, uh, anywhere else than in Ukraine. They can even not make it in Ukraine. So when you say he wants to reshape the relationship, I guess, with the West and NATO, you mean uh, being able to like dictate, hey, you're not going to expand further. Is that the main thing? I think that's the main things. And to say we want to be at the table of negotiation for everything happening in terms of European security. So NATO expansion, global relationship with the U.S. in terms of, you know, uh, uh, arms control and so on. And any kind of discussion on how Europe should evolve should include us uh, uh, as being a key kind of security actor in Europe. I think that's the long term messages that they are that Putin and not only Putin, that the Russian kind of foreign policy elites are really considering is their key point. When you talk about the Russian state and then this sort of parallel state, I've been seeing articles uh, recently, I have a few pulled up right now, about the boss of the Wagner Group. Um, and I don't want to mispronounce his name. I think it's uh, Prigozhin. Prigozhin. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. But I, I've been seeing articles claiming that he could eventually become uh, a political threat Uh, to Putin. Uh, Should that be something that we're taking into consideration that there's far right elements that could see themselves as being political um, enemies of Putin down the line rather than allies? Well, I think that's one of the ambiguities of the regime between what is the the official government and what is the parallel state, right? So I think Prigozhin has ambitions to become a, a Russian politicians. And that he wants to be recognized on the domestic political scene as an actor, probably as a deputy, as a, I don't know, a governor or a member of the government. And he will be fighting with a lot of enemy that he has inside the Russian political landscape. 
if he can be an enemy or a kind of competitor to Putin, I think is more difficult to grasp. You have that potentiality. And I think for, because Putin is also getting aged, right? So his image as the kind of macho, you know, traditional masculinity man is also slowly eroding. And you have other masculine figure fighting on the front line emerging as, as Prigozhin. So you could imagine that a kind of competition, but I think so far Prigozhin is still very much under control, like controlled, right, by the, the 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 Putin's regime and people around Putin. So they are playing one group against the other. So they are playing the Prigozhin against, you know, the the Russian Defense Minister Shoigu against different uh, uh, civilian political figures. So I think the regime still control the internal competition of elites. You could imagine, depending how the war is evolved, that they would lose control. But so far, they always were able to keep control of all these kind of Pandora box of intra-elite fight, right? Well, so, so far, is, they manage, yeah. Well, I was going to say, why is the Putin regime, it, it, that sounds like it could be playing with fire. So, like, why why are they taking that risk, I guess? Because I think that's the way the regime has been beat. Right, the way the regime emerged in the late 90s, so still during Yeltsin time, is was really to have a figure like Putin keeping track and becoming the main like arbitrator between all the different vested groups. At the beginning, it was between oligarchs groups mostly. And then gradually, it, it's not only oligarchs, it's also the military industrial complex, the paramilitary figure like Prigozhin. It can be several groups inside the civilian technocratic elites. But the whole regime is built on this idea that Putin is managing the different vested interest group and is playing one against the other. And so far, he ha- it has worked because it makes the regime very flexible, right? It can adapt. It's an ad hoc regime that can adapt to new situation and that can they have been able to create a situation when no one can envision how the system would work without Putin being the big final decision maker between these different groups. So of course it's always a Pandora box. There is always a risk that there are a moment they will lose control. But so far they haven't. Right? The same with Russian nationalists. I mean they opened the Pandora box of letting them speaking really very widely in 2014, for example, and then they were able to close the box and to repress them. They have been reopening the box now with all this, uh, um, uh, like Prigozhin, Wagner, war correspondent group that are much more radical than what Putin himself is saying. It's difficult to know if they entirely control or not entirely, if they can stop them. So far, they managed. You know, in, in terms of uh, Putin, we often hear about, uh, oh, he's trying to reconstruct the Soviet Union or he's a Soviet nostalgic. Uh, is it a little bit more complicated than that, though? Because I've seen speeches where uh, Putin does not have necessarily entirely nice things to say about, say, um, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, and it, at times it sounds like he's almost, um, you know, fond of czarism. Uh, so what is his sort of Soviet nostalgism, if it exists? Is it actually in favor of Soviet policies, or is it something more complicated than that? Yeah, it's a very good point, because I think it's it's much more complicated. So you have two, two parts of that, right? One is that what matters is to be a great power. So if Tsarism was a great power, then it's good. And when the Soviet Union was a great power, it's good. 
meaning everything around the Bolshevik revolution and Leninism was bad because it made Russia weak for a few years. But then once Stalin arrived in power, it's make Soviet Union or Russia great again. And therefore that's okay. So you can be both nostalgic or for example, Tsar Alexander III, which was really a time of kind of imperial Russia, great powerness, and a fan of Stalin. And that works together, right? As long as you consider that the civil war and the Bolshevik revolution were a moment of weakness, therefore they are negative. That's why Putin can sometimes be uh, positive about Tsarist time and positive about Soviet time. What matters is the the state continuity over time, over regime and the great powerness. So that's one aspect. The second one is that I think he genuinely believed that, and a large part of the, the Russian foreign policy elite, that the kind of Soviet Union from the 70s and 80s were the moment of the maximum of great powerness of Russia, like really on equal foot almost with the US. And that's the kind of, you know, the kind of long-term goal that you want to get uh, 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 back for Russia. And I think one element that arrived gradually that was not so visible at the beginning of Putin's time is how much the Second World War, the Second World War memory, the Great Patriotic War memory, would become so central in his vision of great power. Because when you see how he's acting now since since the full-scale invasion, it's really like historical reenactment of the war, like in literal term, right? The war is an historical reenactment. Of the Second World War, it seems right that down Putin... to the whole idea of we're going into denazify Ukraine, right? Exactly. So it really feel like he's himself projected himself into a kind of live experiment of historical reenactment, which I don't think was there. Like when he arrived in power in two thousand, in at that time it was more the kind of late Soviet, you know, Brezhnev time great power that matters. And now it's really got this kind of crystallization around the, the Second World War that arrived like over the years, but it's really, it was not there over the 23 years of his uh, time. So really what's at work with the Putin regime? It's They're not really interested in, oh, uh, you know, communism or this ideology or that ideology. They're really interested in what makes Russia a great power, make Russia great again, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Putin had also a very like ambiguous comment on communism, you know, sometimes criticizing it, sometimes saying some element of it were good. So the kind of if it's communism as a counterbalance to the US, it's good. If it's communism in the sense of a doctrine of social justice with the population, like supporting the state, it's good. If it's Marxism, Per se, not really interesting. It's, it's Leninism, not interesting. Uh, neither. So, what really matters is the state continuity and Russia's status in the world as the kind of resistance to the Western model. So, there's just two more things I wanted to cover. Uh, you know, when this war began, or this, it was being called a special military operation at the time, uh, Putin kept talking about denazifying Ukraine. Uh, what did he mean by denazifying Ukraine? And, uh, you know, maybe you could get a little bit into the history of, you know, I, I think there is a Ukrainian far right. It may be overstated by Putin. Uh, but what what is with this whole claim of we're going to denazify Ukraine? What, what, what went into that? Yeah, I think there have been on the Russian side, both, you know, like 
state media narrative and then think tanks production on the Russian side since 2014, especially and the Euromaidan revolution, a kind of self-intoxication of them genuinely interpreting that there is a very strong Ukrainian far right that is controlling everything happening in Ukraine. There was a lot of report on the Ukrainian side about, you know, Svoboda, the Ukrainian far-right party, then the Azov Battalion. And so they, I think there is a genuine belief that it's a very strong movement in Russia. And that was articulated with this vision that they are repressing the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine. So here also, the Russian elites really totally miscalculated their interpretation of what was happening in the Ukrainian society and didn't catch that you can be a Ukrainian-Russian speaker. Doesn't mean that you are pro-Russian. Doesn't mean that you want to join Russia. You can be a happy Ukrainian citizen, but just a Russian speaker one, right? So they really- It it sounds like, not to interrupt you, but it it, it sounds Mm -hmm. like they went into this spectral military operation thinking, oh, we're going to be greeted as liberators. Well, it seems it was the case. So you had a real kind of intelligence services failure on the Russian side at capturing what was happening in the in the Ukrainian society, which really changed a lot since 2014. So they were. It seemed the Russian services were producing reports that were describing a Ukraine that was the Ukraine of maybe the mid 2000s, but really not the Ukraine post 2014, where you had a stronger national unity feelings happening a better prepared Ukrainian military. And so they really enter, or at least they really gave Putin's information that really misled the organization of the special military operation and resulted in this kind of really military failure that we have seen since then, that they never realized both the resistance of the Ukrainian society, of the Ukrainian leadership, and of the Ukrainian army. And so the denazification element that were there since years arrive at the kind of, you know, kind of the the cherry over the cake, like to try to explain why it's so difficult to occupy or to make Ukraine being pro-Russian in the name of this kind of, it's because they have been Nazified. So you need we need to kind of re-educate them in realizing that their real Ukrainian identity is a pro-Russian one. So in that regard, you're saying it seems like uh these elements within the Russian state very earnestly believe that, oh, yeah, there's a Nazi problem in Ukraine. They're against us Russians. Um, But then people will say to me, does the Russian state really believe that when you have a Jewish president uh, in Ukraine, Zelensky? So how do you respond to people that say, uh, no, they don't really earnestly believe this. It's just a sort of um, cynical uh, statement that they're making when they talk about denazification. Why do you believe they're earnest about it, I guess? Yeah, I think when you look at, when you discuss with people in Russia, with this Russian elite circle, I think they still, they genuinely had that belief that it was, uh, 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 that Ukraine was kind of really transformed by, you know, Western, especially US pressure, and that the far right was really much more important than what it was or what it is. Uh, on the ground uh, um, in Ukraine. So I really, it doesn't mean that after they won't have an instrumentalist use of that, you know, in state propaganda and so on. But I think we have to realize that this kind of what we thought was just, you know, like, oh, so stupid, like basic conspiracy theory that they don't believe in it. It's purely cynical. They just tell that to their population through media. 
they genuinely, I think, share that and 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 the kind of the cognitive dissonance that we have now between the Western vision of the war and the Russian vision of the war is really based on that. That for the elites, I mean, many of them were believing at least some element of the state narrative, right? And I think we have to kind of accept the feeling the, the, or this impression that it can it influence the decision making process in Russia. And it's not only a kind of, you know, purely instrumental construction. Before closing out here, uh, you know, when you ask the question in your book, is Russia fascist? And you sort of unravel both the uh, narratives on the East and the West. What are the important implications, you think, of that question? Is Russia fascist? Because I think it has important implications for how we discuss fascism, authoritarianism, autocracy, nationalism, and then also the very fuzzy distinction between nationalism and patriotism, right? Because I, I think when people want to paint something in a good light, they'll say it's patriotic. If they want to paint it in a negative light, they'll say nationalistic. How does all of this, why why does the question, is Russia fascist matter to our discussion of all of these topics and the issue of illiberalism in the world today and its sort of rise in different nation states? Yeah, I think it's it's a kind of the way I was framing the book is this question is Russia fascist. It's an entry point, right? A kind of conceptual gate to look how much that is very normatively constructed. So it's a way of projecting what is the other, you know, the the opposite, the kind of the evil against the good, against the liberal democracy. So it's super normative in defining who are we in the West. Who are we as Democrats, as liberal, as kind of post-nationalist or I don't know, cosmopolitan elites? And then kind of, so it's very orientalizing the others. And I think it was an, a, a good kind of conceptual tool to try to deconstruct that and say that, well, you have geopolitical strategies at play, right? You have difficulties of us projecting ourselves as part of the discussion, right? It's not that Russia got crazy by itself alone, that the West interacted with Russia over 30 years and also contributed to create an environment that kind of uh, uh, um, gradually closed the the kind of the, the way to, to, to discuss with Russia. And if you look now, the difficulties of the West to attract the global South on the way we frame the war, the global South doesn't buy the war as being a kind of global war where Ukraine represents the good liberal democracy and Russia is everything bad. So I think it's telling us very a lot about how we have become very normative in the use of all this terminology and that it's important conceptually to try to be less normative and also to look at the West as a producer of illiberalism, nationalism, authoritarianism in some version, Right and kind of imperialism. In what way? How, how does the West help produce those things? Well, I think both. Well, first we have, of course, obviously homegrown, homegrown far right, you know, illiberal groups that are also an important uh, uh, element of our own constituencies and our own culture. And then we have to realize that, seen from the global south, the kind of the Western liberal order can be also seen as a form of colonialism, of imperialism, of domination, right? So it's our liberal democratic model may make sense in the West, but it's also very much challenged on the way it is interpreted by those who feel at the periphery. 
So I think you have a lot of kind of, you know, knowledge production, hierarchy, and, and kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, this balance that have to be taken into consideration to avoid the, the too much normativity aspect of the discussion. In that regard, and I promise I'll let you go after this, but um, is there also this problem when we talk about the West and Russia or the U.S. and Russia, is there a problem of maybe, a, I don't know if you can call them ancient hatreds, but, you know, I've seen U.S. commentators even before the war say things like, you know, Russia is just this Asiatic country or, you know, they're, they're not like us, um, you know, and of course we now see uh, certain people referring to Russian soldiers as orcs and things of that nature, which I think is it's very sort of um, racially based. Uh, is there is there just this sort of cultural hatred between the West and Russia that has sort of come to a head with all of this? Yeah, well, I think you have a U.S.-Russia kind of mutual perception of seeing the other as the 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 so the kind of cultural enemy on which you base your own identity i think in europe it was much more nuanced but of course not for central and eastern europe and for whom also nationhood is very much built against the 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 russian experience of having been dominated so i think right you so had countries this, like poland etc yeah the baltic states ukraine of course so for whom indeed nationhood is built against Russia. And so now you have this kind of merging of both this U.S. grand strategy of seeing Russia or China as the other, mixing with the Central European kind of nationhood process all around the Ukraine war in kind of creating this kind of civilizational line of divide of indeed Russia is another war, they will never make it, they cannot be like us, which I found it's also a mirror game, right? Because we accuse Russia of playing the kind of civilizational line. But if you look at a lot of US media report on the war, it's also super civilizationist, right? That we, and that's, I think, what the global South is reacting to, that they don't want to see that frame like that. And right? that's not but, to say that Russia doesn't play that game though either, right? Of course they are. They are playing it at its maximum saying, you know, like you have the civilization of the gay pride, and then the civilization that opposed the gay pride. So you have the healthy conservative civilization and the perverted decadent Western civilization. But we also play it very much. And when we frame it as Russia will never, you know, be able to make it, it should be, it should collapse as a state because it's an empire that cannot become democratic as it is now. Or if it's a, a narrative about we, the free world against all the autocrats of the world, I mean, it's also a very civilizationist kind of black and white narrative. Well, uh, Marlene Laurel, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. If there was anything you wanted my listeners to get out of the conversation we've been having, what would it be? What, what do you hope they get out of this conversation about not only uh, the attack on the uh, Bryansk region of Russia, but also this question of is Russia fascist? Maybe you could just tackle that momentarily here. Well, I think I would say that, yeah, Russia is more complex than what is usually reported. And it's good to try to, you know, keep a granular, nuanced knowledge of what is happening on the Russian side and trying to also project that society over time and in all its kind of diversity and complexity. That would be my main kind of a, a, a takeaway and the kind of we need to deconstruct the normativity of the concept we use in political science would be my kind of second takeaway, I guess.
Real quick, since you mentioned um, the complexity of things, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, uh, there seems to be overwhelming support in Russia for this war, this special military operation. I think it's a bit more complicated than that, because my understanding from speaking with um, exiled Russian anti-war activists and Russian leftists is that even if you're given a poll in Russia by, say, the Levada Center, which is considered you know, hostile by the Russian state, even if those polls are given out, to Russian citizens, a lot of Russian citizens are going to think, oh, this is a loyalty test. They're not going to be thinking, oh, this is the Levada Center. They're uh, against the Russian state. They don't take that into consideration. So they not, may not even be answering polls um, honestly. Uh, so do you think that's that's at work here where, um, you know, a lot of Russians aren't necessarily voicing their opinions about this war? Yeah, so I think you have two elements. You have the authoritarian context in which you don't want necessarily to voice your concern, but the Levada Center is saying and considering on explaining on how they do the pool that they don't think so many people are self-censoring themselves. I think what is the other key element is that there is ambiguities in the question. When you ask people, do they support the war? What people understand is that do they support your government in making the right decision for the country? And I think that's the way we should be reading that, that it's a majority of people saying we trust the government in making the right decision for the country. If the decision is war, it's war. But the day the Russian government will say the right decision is peace, people will shift toward the peace. And we know Levada asked some of these questions. You have a majority of Russians who would like to see uh, a ceasefire and peace negotiation arriving. So it's a trust in the government to make the right decision more than a support for the war, right? So probably you would have like, I don't know, 15 to 20% of the population that would be really like actively supporting the war in itself. And then 20% that are courageous enough now to say they don't support the war. And then in the middle, you have this kind of 60% that are supporting the government for making the best decision for the country, war or peace, right? So I think that's the nuance that we need to have here. Well, thank you again, Marlene Laurel, for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone should check out your book, Is Russia Fascist? Thank you once again. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Marlene Laurel, and that you'll consider picking up her book, Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. As always, if you enjoy the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. 
But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.